This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me to discuss the National Academy of Medicine's recently published consensus report titled Implementing High-Quality Primary Care, Rebuilding the Foundation of Healthcare, is the report's co-chair, Dr. Robert Phillips, founding executive director of the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare. Dr. Phillips, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, David. I'm so glad to be here. Briefly on background, listeners are aware the U.S. healthcare, U.S. healthcare rather, significantly underperforms. We spend approximately twice as much on healthcare as other comparative countries, yet have significantly poor health outcomes, including the highest rates of preventable deaths. This is substantially due to the fact primary care in the U.S., as the National Academy of Medicine report states in its opening, is quote-unquote slowly dying. As this report, the fourth such report published by National Academy over the fourth, past four decades, notes further, despite the fact uh, the value of primary care is beyond dispute, approximately 25% of Americans do not have a primary care provider. And 80 million Americans live in a public health, live rather in public health professional shortage areas. This in turn is largely due to the fact that there is no functioning primary care market. For example, only 5% of healthcare spending goes to primary care, despite the fact primary care visits account for 40% of all medical office visits, i.e. PCPs are comparatively or currently substantially underpaid. This explains why the primary care workforce has been declined for decades, resulting in an estimated shortage of over 20,000 primary care physicians. With me again to discuss the National Academy of Medicine's recent report implementing high-quality primary care is Dr. Robert Phillips. One final note, uh, the National Academy of Medicine is conducting a related four-part webinar series that began today and runs through uh, June 29th. And in fact, I'll post uh, the link to it. So with that, Dr. Phillips's background or for orientation, let's go right to this. Uh, the report makes several recommendations noted in uh, five categories, um, but let me just start um, by prompting you to identify a few I found particularly uh, noteworthy, and that is, uh, first, uh, the report states that primary care should be recognized as a common good. Can you explain, for listeners who may not be familiar, what, what's meant by common good? No, thanks, David, it, it, and that was one, you're absolutely right, that was kind of one of our uh, overarching recommendations. It means that um, just like our bridges and roadways and our school systems, that, that this should be something available to all people in the United States, regardless of ability to pay um, or where they live, that this is a critical infrastructure because it is so important to health equity and health outcomes, uh, including costs. So we feel that everyone should be availed of it and, and this actually fits into an international context as well, uh, which is, you know, declared that primary health care should be available to all people. It, uh, it does not get into the 
the realm of universal health care, but it does say that primary health care should be available to everyone. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, I'll prompt with another. Uh, again, these are in uh, recommendations under five objectives. Uh, the report also recommends that um, all Americans uh, should select a primary care provider or be assigned one. So this, of course, reinforces or furthers your point about it being a, a, a common good. Uh, my question, though, uh, well, that recommendation is self-explanatory. You know, when you say or be assigned one, how would that work? Well, that's a, that's a fair question. And I think some people have interpreted that as meaning uh, whether you want one or not, one will be assigned to you. And that is not the case. This is more of an issue of accountability. So if someone seeks care in a hospital, in an emergency room, in a community health center, um, and have not been given the opportunity to declare that someone is their primary care clinician uh, or that they have a primary care home, uh, it should be the responsibility of that entity to either claim them or to help them find uh, such a home. It, and I just want to make sure that that's understood by listeners. It's, it's not a forced function on anyone. Uh, it just means that they need to have a connection and it should start with an accountability from wherever they've sought care. Okay, thank you again. Let me just note two, and again, these are in under five objectives. They're almost about 20 and some. I'll just note recommendations. But you do say, and this I hint at or make note of in introduction uh, relative to uh, how primary care physicians or providers are paid, you do recommend equalizing compensation. So again, uh, obviously that's, pretty apparent what that means, but can you say more about uh, that recommendation? Yeah, so it, it reflects the, the issue that the, the difference in income between primary care clinicians and um, a lot of interventional subspecialists has grown over the years um, substantially so that it's, it's very hard for a medical student or a nursing student or a PA student to choose a primary care when the other options are more likely to help them pay off their loans, buy a first home, save for their college tuition for their kids. Uh, and that gap is, is important. Um, it also, you know, drives culture. It, it leads people to believe that primary career, primary care careers are not as desirable or as valuable. So whether it's culture or it's the actual financial difference in the, in the choice that that reflects, uh, we're driving our, our young learners in the healthcare fields away from primary care, and it's contributing to an erosion of the workforce uh, that's happening even faster in shortage in rural areas. Right. Thank you. You do note in the report that uh, primary care workforce has declined between 5 and 7% per 100,000 residents between 05 and 15. And that explains uh, why, as I noted in the intro, uh, while primary care makes up a substantial percentage of office business, why the spending for primary care is comparatively so little uh, at 5%. There are numerous other recommendations. I'll make note of one more and then feel free to uh, cite others you think are, are more important. And that is the recommendation 
that there be created a HHS Secretary's Council on Primary Care. What what prompted that, and and what would be the purpose or objective of creating a, such a council? So, David, that comes from the the realization that the 1996 report uh, had had several recommendations, particularly uh, pointing at federal agencies, and most of them never never happened. Uh, there, there's no federal champion. There's no agency in HHS. There's no secretarial level uh, leadership that has accountability for primary care. And, and without that, uh, there's no one to really deliver on a primary care uh, policy. The other piece of evidence related to this is that if you look at our nation, national epidemic plans prior to the pandemic, Primary care was not seen as a strategy, was not seen as an agent or, or a platform to focus on. And so it's not a surprise that when the pandemic happened, uh, primary care was not part of the vaccination strategy. It was not part of how you reach underserved or rural communities. Uh, it just wasn't there. Um, now, the difference was that in the last few months, our, our nation's health centers that take care of about one in 11 Americans uh, did become part of the vaccination strategy, but they had a champion in the Health Resources and Services Administration because that's the agency that has oversight of health centers. Without anyone having oversight at the federal level for primary care generally, it, it never became a focus. So the Secretary's Council for Primary Care uh, became our, our lead strategy for creating that federal champion creating a coordinating function across HHS agencies to make sure that that primary care can be seen, mm-hmm. that it can be integrated into our into our nation's healthcare plans. Because if we don't have that, we're just going to continue to see an erosion of its function and a growth in the uh, in the inequities in health. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Just to further your point, the uh, or comments rather, the report notes that the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality (HRQ) is the only agency with a primary care research mandate, but its uh, National Center for Excellence in Primary Care has no dedicated research funding. And relative to the effect the pandemic has had on primary care providers, you cite a March, or excuse me, a May rather 2020 survey that showed that 42 percent of primary care providers had laid off or furloughed staff and 51% were uncertain of their financial viability going forward. So the pandemic had a um, negative effect on an already shortage uh, of uh, primary care uh, providers to stay uh, at it. Okay, uh, so go ahead. I'm okay. sorry. I was just saying, uh, if I could build on that, yeah. Sure. Uh, you know, primary care uh, clinicians were seen as another, just any other small business. Um, there was no provision in any of the congressional relief bills specifically focused on maintaining the primary care infrastructure. And, and you're absolutely right. So, you know, while a lot of them uh, appeared threatened and we don't know quite the, the result of or the outcome of that, um, I run a national primary care registry and, and we saw, you know, visit declines of nearly 40 percent at the peak, uh, but it never recovered uh Completely, even through December, we were still seeing visit reductions of 20% across the board, and and we saw we we can see in that registry cohort that that uh, 
clinicians were furloughed, particularly nurse practitioners and PAs. Um, so we, we don't have a, an act because there's no federal champion for primary care. We don't have an assessment of what actually happened. And we may uh, we may not know for some time. Right. And, and regardless, we'll absolutely regret it or likely as such. Let me a- uh, absolutely. And relative to uh, the effect the pandemic had, of course, since healthcare largely using a Medicare's uh, nomenclature term is fee for service. If primary care physician or any other physician isn't seeing uh, patients, then obviously their income uh, dramatically uh, is compromised. That goes to the recommendation. Uh, and let me just stay with uh, maybe this one, and then we'll move on to some other issues I'd like to discuss. And that is, you do under the objective one have the recommendation that the um, federal policy should move or evolve from payment using a fee-for-service or a fee-for-service model or shift primary care payment towards a hybrid model or hybrid model, partly fee-for-service, partly capitated. Uh, Could you say more about that? So that would address this issue, obviously, but could you say more about that? It it would. Yes, it would. Um, We we recognize that there's some need for -for fee-for-service to make sure that certain things that everyone needs done get done, like vaccinations. But but by and large, it's a poor model for so supporting primary care because it really it demands volume. And what we what we think is better and there's good evidence for is that you should pay if you pay on a capitation basis or a population basis, it it secures that infrastructure and it also enables that that infrastructure to tailor its services to the community it's serving. So there, there's a, a need for flexibility to address the needs of particular populations that fee-for-service just can't do, including what's an increasing pressure on primary care to deal with social determinants of health. And, and fee-for-service certainly doesn't support that. So moving to that capitation or population health model will, will service a number of other recommendations in the report. Right, right. Great. Thank you. Let, let sure. me go to some uh, specific uh, issues discussed in the report. Um, so not surprisingly, uh, there is discussion uh, about uh, patient-centered medical homes, uh, PCMHs. Uh, I was very interested in finding that discussion because, of course, as you know, over the last 10 years, there's been a great deal of conversation about uh, what hope or promise they could provide in improving primary care. Uh, but it was unclear to me how positive or not the committee was in its conclusion regarding PCMH performance. I know the data on PCMHs is relatively mixed, but give the listener a sense of where they fit into and how helpful they can be in better addressing and providing primary care. Sure. I think it's a fair question. And, and, and the reason we didn't lean heavily on it is because uh, many of the f- features and functions of prim- patient-centered medical homes have never really been enabled. Uh, for a patient-centered medical home to function appropriately, empanelment becomes critically important. You need to know who you're taking care of and how you're doing for them. Um, you, you need to build that patient-centered medical home team to reflect the needs of the population uh, there's always going to be a core clinical team, but but then what you have in your office with you know behavioral health or social workers or health coaches, uh, and what you need in your community team with community health care workers, in particular, 
uh, again, need to be modified based on your community uh, and, and again, are dependent on the payment model that can support that. So we think that the, the evidence for PCMH has largely been mixed because we haven't actually implemented the policies to support it. And where you see it function, I think extremely well is in the health center movement uh, because HRSA and others have enabled health centers to build out those this core clinical and um, the extension teams, uh, you really see a, a much, much more uh, of a robust model and ability to deliver on pa- patients' needs in their in those centers. Right, correct. So these technically these are the federal FQHCs, federally qualified health centers. Let me just stay with this for a bit. This mm-hmm. is chapter four in the uh, volume. Uh, person-centered, family-centered, and community-oriented primary care. A lot of discussion, as you just suggested, about providing care for the quote-unquote whole person or providing whole person care, which would include physical and mental health. We don't do a good job at all uh, on this. Um, I mean, in reading this, I was not surprised to see. I was, I was a long, I'm a long-time Barbara Starfield uh, person, and she is cited uh-huh. throughout this. Um, can you say more again about uh, or flesh out a bit what's meant by uh, team-based and whole person care? Because that, that's critical. That's critical to understanding, I think, um, quality primary care. Uh, David, that it is, it is so critical. Um, so in a fee-for-service model, you're typically only having one clinician see a patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and we have the best evidence around behavioral health integrated into primary care uh, where you can deal with people's mental health issues, behavioral health issues, um, and do warm handoffs from the clinician to the behavioral health specialist. Uh, we also have good evidence that integration of those functions in primary care do not pay for themselves. So we really need a different model. And if you're gonna bring in community health workers to be able to be agents in the community, and that, that idea of community-oriented primary care is not new. Uh, you know, It was developed in South Africa and Israel in the United States as part of the launch of the health center movement in the late 60s. There's a lot of good evidence that that ability of primary care to be an agent of the patient and the community is much richer and, a bit, and able to change health outcomes than just focusing on the patient in the visit. So we, we really need to build out these teams that can meet more of the needs of the patient while still maintaining the, some of the primary relationships that Barbara Starfield wrote about so extensively in terms of continuity and longitudinality. Uh, there, there's a tension in that having teams and having relationship, but, but there are good models for managing both. Let me, let me stay with this uh team-based, longitudinal, relational, and that's that gets at this issue of the therapeutic relationship. Yes. And while that has a long history, uh, or the recognizing the benefit of the therapy as, as a long history, I'm sure you're well aware that healthcare has really gone retail. Uh, it's transactional. And in fact, I think you actually say, use the word transactional somewhere in the report, at, although I, I'd be hard-pressed to moment the report just to note is about 350-plus pages what what's your hope that we could try uh, to f- fight the tide here on uh, again the, 
the healthcare industry um, becoming again more more of a retail model, a transactional model, and try to restore or try to uh, reestablish these um, you know relationships where there is a therapeutic, uh, a genuine therapeutic relationship. Well, I I think there's good evidence that patients want it. Yeah, relationship, therapeutic relationship is central to trust. Um, and there's good evidence uh, from more than 20 years ago about that. Uh, and trust in itself is, is so important for helping patients change behaviors, uh, accept treatments, um, a variety of things. So fighting a tide, it, it could be. Um, or we could choose to do differently and, and move back in that direction. I think some of the the transactional relationship uh, movement has partly been spurred by patients who've given up. Um, they've given up on finding those kinds of relationships. For younger people, it's not giving up. It's they just don't realize how valuable they are yet. But mm-hmm. you know, even in my own even in my own practice, uh, I have I have patients who, when I see the first time, they're often the first question is, "Are you going to be around for a while?" And will you be my doctor? Right. Uh, because they're having, they, they struggle to find it. Right. And you do, the, the volume does make mention of, and, and we see this through through these, these various termed minute clinics, sort uh-huh. of these uh, kiosk sort of care models. Um, so that's where it's, it's most obvious. Let me, I would like to spend some time on, on a quality. Uh, this is... Um, you know, obviously a critical issue in, in all of healthcare. This is chapter eight, primary care measures and use, powerful, simple, accessible, or accountable rather. Uh, let me just ask you generally to uh, explain where the committee came out and what its recommendations were relative to um, measuring uh, and accounting for care quality. So the committee didn't, actually, you know, didn't nominate any specific measures, mm-hmm. uh, but rather said that, you know, the measures that are currently used are, you know, disease and process oriented. So they don't, they don't look at the highest value functions of primary care. And, you know, the, the, U, the United Kingdom uh, preceded us in this effort with the quality outcome framework. And what right. they, what they, what they found after 15 years is that, uh, they had actually pushed primary care away from some of the high value functions and increased burnout. And some of those high value functions that you've already mentioned, continuity, you, you can absolutely measure continuity and panelment helps that, but you can measure it now. And uh, the evidence is that continuity is one of the most potent measures in terms of its association with reduced cost and utilization and improved outcomes. Uh Things like comprehensiveness and the ability of a, a primary care clinic to deliver on most of the needs of patients. So, you know, the teams and the, the scope of care it can deliver. Um, there are a number of patient reported outcomes that are in development or that or have been developed that have also shown high value, like measures of trust. Um, so it's what we tried to lay out there is that quality measurement is is powerful for changing behavior, especially when it's associated with high stakes and payment. So why not use those behavior drivers 
the hookup to things that are actually very valuable in primary care. Mm -hmm. Okay, just to make note, you do... Um, so I would say largely the chapter creates a, uh, an orientation or a framework or an approach towards uh, measuring quality. And I'll just note at 261, you have a box, domains for assessing quality uh, that I thought were helpful uh, or useful. Um, let me let me spend a moment, though, on, and you do discuss uh, in this chapter, you do discuss value um, uh, or uh measuring uh, value. And I note this because we use the word, uh, particularly since the Affordable Care Act was passed 11 years ago, we use the word almost ad nauseum today, uh, pay for value, value-based payments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the word is used generically. Uh, we don't, for example, try to measure for value. And you probably know this is the Michael Porter argument dating back 10 plus years, outcomes achieved relative spending or as a numerator denominator or the correlation between quality and cost. And you saw CMS tried to move towards in this direction with macro MIPS a couple years ago that all got delayed because of the pandemic by proposing MIPS value pathways, MVPs. Uh -huh. um, uh, but although this chapter does recognize value, and of course you actually try to define it um, with, I thought, a fairly generic uh, definition here at page 260, what is thought of to be beneficial is a judgment based on shared agreement regarding social norms and expectations. So that's fairly general. It wasn't, again, as precise as trying to actually calculate value. And this is an important issue, certainly, because, of course, we spend a substantial amount on healthcare, And generally speaking, it's difficult to know what exactly our healthcare dollar is buying which helps explain, of course, you know, the tremendous amount of low-value, no-value care and waste. So maybe just ask you, um, where do you think, if, if, if you were writing this report, would you have said more about trying to understand or push for value, or where would you go with this? Because, again, I realize this is a consensus report. Well, just, we wrestled. Just, just to say, and I'll introduce yeah. this here, although this is a conversation for an entirely other uh, <laughs> interview, I, I, I was very pleased to see June 1, you published with two colleagues a, an essay in, in the Health Affairs blog, Adjusting Medicare Payments yep. for Social Risk and Better so Support Social Needs, which I thought was fantastic because you know where I'm going with this. I want to ask about risk adjustment yep. um, as it relates to uh, measuring for quality. So if you want to tie those two together or not, uh, but that was going to be my next question anyway. No, I sure can. So let me start with the question of value. Uh, you're right. This is a consensus report, and, um, and, and the group decided not to declare particular measures or particular values, but rather use the whole report as a framework for what primary care can deliver. Um, uh, I am specifically involved in trying to develop an MVP, a measure value pathway for primary care, uh, and to populate it with the high value function measures of primary care. So some of us are very focused on that as a driver. Absolutely. Um, and as you noted that the health affairs blog that we published, we've been trying to push on how do you, how do you get more resources 
to particularly primary care clinics that are that are that are managing uh, very high risk populations so that they can build out these more robust teams and meet the needs of that patient population. And one of the ways is by doing it with social risk. Um, we've been focused fairly on the payment side of it because CMS has wrestled for some time with whether they should adjust measures right, too. Right. But there's, there's an increasing pressure to adjust measures, not to hide poor care for poor people, but to acknowledge it's, it, it is extremely difficult to move measures for high risk populations to the level of the general population. Mm-hmm. But, but you can assess how are they doing compared to how you expect they should be doing. Right. So we, we need to, because you don't want to give resources on one side by adjusting payments and then take them away by penalizing for poor performance. Um, you want to make sure that you're, you're assessing how well they're doing compared to how you think they should be doing and how much further they have to go. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, and, and you've seen this, uh, and this has actually, um, uh, been studied and this is actually the research finding that is you get this reverse Robin hood effect yeah. where you have providers with more complex patients who have more social needs, um, uh, Needless to say, they can't score as well on quality reporting, uh, and uh, uh, they're unnecessarily uh, inappropriately punished because their their quality scores aren't uh, adjusted, and they can't perform as well. Again, this that's a, this is a very complicated law. In fact, if we could discuss this at another time, because yeah. as you know, as you suggested, ASPE's put out some reports per a congressional directive. Uh, no firm conclusion. CMS is pretty much on the fence now, or still on the fence, and figuring out how to and how to do this, or if to do it at all, and then how to do it. And it's an important; it's a very important issue. It has all sorts of ripple effects, particularly as obviously related to interest in improving or driving health uh, equity. Let me go to, and we have time for a couple more questions. Uh, you're well aware, of course, uh, there are primary care demonstrations under CMS CMMI. Uh, CPC, CPC, uh, comprehensive primary care, and then plus, and then there's the primary care first demo. You don't get into these, uh, specifically they're mentioned in the report. Uh, how hopeful are you relative to how these are designed? Because they do, and they do try to stabilize reimbursement. Uh, so there's a management fee. Um, and they try to do some other things that, uh, try to level the playing field. Um, and improve the ability to deliver care. What's your sense of these demos and where they're going? Well, David, we, we do allude to them. Right, um, yes. And, and pretty pointedly, uh, we, we think they were underpowered. You yes. Know, so we, we, we call for increasing primary care investment by at least 50%, and CPC Plus did it maybe up to 25%. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say that these things should not be evaluated on the basis of short-term cost savings because right. – the impact of primary care is the arc is long and you just can't do it in three years. Um, we talk about the need to measure on care improvement as the fundamental metric and, and CPC plus I think has, has demonstrated that care improvement, at least quality metrics did, did change much more than costs were reduced. So, you know, what, what was the committee was really saying in these recommendations was 
you should increase payment like CPC Plus did. Uh, you should do it in a uh, per capita or, or population-based payment model. Um, and you, you should not hold it hostage to short-term cost savings as, as its outcome metric. Right. And that gets to the long-term uh, battle or struggle with the Congressional Budget Office as to how do you score preventative care. And again, that's a whole other, that's a whole other interview. Uh, but that's where, that's where this winds up sooner or later because, of course, as, um, you know, these under CMMI, these demos have to either, you know, improve cost or quality. And, and if it's one, then the other has to be, uh, no more than can't be worse. It has to be at least neutral. Um, and that's a, a substantial limitation, um, the way CBO presently scores, which is pretty common short, you know, looking at, at the near term. Let me, let me conclude, uh, by asking, uh, you know, there's a lot here, obviously, to think about. Um, this has been a long-standing problem in U.S. healthcare delivery. As I noted at the top, this is uh, at least the fourth report by the National Academy over the last several decades. Um, what did I fail to ask or what did we didn't cover uh, that you feel uh, is certainly worth noting? Um, and what's, and or what's your hope for uh, uh, the use or utility of this report? Well, I think I think the um, the implementation plan, which was a unique feature of this report, it's not common for National Academies reports. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the implementation plan becomes a high priority. Uh, having that that federal coordinating function, which is largely the reason that the past three reports had no effect, uh, becomes critical. Um, I think the the payment uh, chapter, the payment recommendations are are similarly important because, you know, without changing the way we pay and how much we pay for primary care services, it, the rest of it becomes very hard to accomplish. So at least in the near term, I think our priorities are to try and convince HHS and the secretary specifically that, that putting in a primary care uh, council um, is just a, a very high importance. Right. And this was, correct me if I'm wrong, this was chapter 10, correct? It is. It is. And, and we also talked about accountability scorecard uh, using existing data sets to uh, measure success or not of implementation of many of these recommendations. Okay. Uh, Dr. Phillips, we're at our, about our time. So I do want to say thank you for this overview. Again, and I will note uh, for the listener, I will note the webinar series or a link to it when this posts. So I encourage folks to uh, learn more about it through that uh, National Academy programming. So with that, Dr. Phillips, thank you again. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate the opportunity. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.